familiar with the business book, Good to Great, by Jim Collins. It's a fascinating study of 10 pairs of companies. Uh, both companies were good. One became great, and most of those who were good fell out. And he wrote another book that was called Why the Mighty Fall. And he explains exactly what happens to these companies. He speaks of companies like Motorola uh, as one. Uh, and others that were very prominent. Uh, Circuit City was another one. The box store uh, was very prominent. Rite Aid, if you remember. Eckerd Drugs was another one in Florida. Uh, in the southeast, that was very prominent. And they faded off. So in this book, he talks about the five stages that lead to failure. He says the first stage is growth and success. The second stage is the undisciplined pursuit of more where what becomes more important than why. Stage three is the denial of risk and peril. Stage four is grasping for salvation. And stage five is capitulation to irrelevance and death. I think it's very fitting parallel to what happens in our spiritual lives apart from God. That initially we make our mark out in our lives and we feel like that we're experiencing growth and success, but we become unaware of the perils that are facing us, which eventually lead to a life of disappointment, despair, destruction, and even death itself to the point where it's too late to make any changes. We're going to see that in our lives today, we need somebody other than ourselves to build our lives upon, and that is a mighty God. I want you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, and for those who were here last Sunday, maybe you weren't, we started a series called The Name. It's the name of the concert that uh, we're having last night and tonight, and around that theme, I've decided to use Isaiah chapter 9 and talk about the names that are given to the Messiah which we know as Jesus Christ. And so the prophet Isaiah is speaking to Judah, and he says these words in Isaiah 9 as it relates to the coming Messiah. They are going to be in exile, and they're going to return one day, and so he's trying to give a message of hope and that there is an opportunity for rejoicing. He says this, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice <clears throat> and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, we saw last week how this Messiah, Jesus Christ, is a wonderful counselor. Today, we see Christ as a mighty God. It's interesting that he equates Christ, this Messiah, as God himself and that he is a mighty God. Now, in the context of when Isaiah is writing this, he's trying to show that this child who is going to come is not just a mere man, mortal man, but that he is God himself, that he is a divine being. We know as we study the Old and New Testament that this Messiah had to be fully God and fully man in order to be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And that's what he is affirming. 
The prophets may not have clearly understood the concept of the Trinity in the day in which they were living and when they wrote the scripture, but they understood the incarnation. And they believed that God would come in this form of a Messiah in form, some form or fashion. And we see that here in this passage where this is describing a child or a son that is going to come and that he is mighty God. The Messiah is the earthly representative of God. In Isaiah 7 verse 14 he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Now in Matthew's account of the birth of Christ, in Matthew 1 verse 23, he uses that quote in that passage, but he adds these words, which is translated, God with us. So Christ is the mighty God. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. But what does that mean? What kind of mighty God is Christ? Well, there's not enough time to list all the titles that are given to this Christ and how mighty that he is, but I want to narrow it down to a few. First of all, that he is our mighty creator, our mighty creator. This is important. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we find that God is creating, and we find that creation is God-centered. We find the very first words, in the beginning, God created. So God is the one who creates. Then it says in the passage of Scripture in Genesis that God created out of nothing. Theologians say ex nihilo. That means there was nothing and then it became. <clears throat> there are those who try to explain different ideas of how all this took place, how it all appeared. And where they struggle is at the very beginning. They'll say that this event happened. There were some elements that were there and then uh, somehow, some way that it, it just appeared uh, the universe in its present form and we find that the elements had to come from somewhere. Who created the elements that were essential to the Big Bang Theory or whatever other theory that there is out there? And we find that that happened because God created out of nothing. There was nothing. God created also, the passage says, immediately. It says that God spoke and it happened. God created distinctively that there were different kinds of creation as far as life form. You have the kind of birds, you have the kind of animals, uh, kinds of plants and all the rest. There are different kinds. We don't have time to get into evolutionary theory and all the rest, but we see that the kinds don't trans transfer to another different kind. That the kinds are, dis are unique in and of themselves. There may be evolution within the kind, the animal, the cat family, the dog family, or whatever else. But we don't see that there's a cross between the two. God created uniquely. The Bible says in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2 that God created male and female. And they were created in the image of God. God created purposefully. With Adam and Eve, with male and female, he's given man, all of us, a purpose for our existence as he did the two of them. And then God created and celebrated. Now, Nehemiah affirms this in Nehemiah 9, verse 5. Stand up, bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Praise your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You created the heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. 
You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host worships you. Now, I want you to notice, though, the main point I want to make here is that this mighty creator is specifically Jesus Christ. Now, Paul tells us that in Colossians chapter 1. He says this, He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, because by Him everything was created, in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and by Him all things hold together. Now, in this passage, he tells us several things about Jesus as the Creator. First of all, he says that this Christ is God, that He is the image of the invisible God. Now, the word image in the Greek text has the idea of symbol and also of manifestation. Had Paul only want to say that Christ was a symbol of God, then he would have used another Greek word to emphasize that. But he uses the word image to show that he's not only the symbol, in fact, He's more than a symbol, that He is the manifestation of God in the flesh. The point is, is that as He says, that this invisible God became visible, that Christ is God. He also says that Christ created the universe, everything that is in it, He created. He says that Christ is preeminent. He's before anything ever was. That's what He means by the word firstborn. It doesn't mean that Christ was the first to be created because Christ was not created. He was in the Godhead before anything was created. As we see, let us make man in our image, plural. And so firstborn means that he is preeminent. He is before anything else was ever created. That Christ also is responsible for creation. He says that it is by him or literally in him. In other words, that Christ worked out the details of creation is what he means. He says, too, that Christ caused creation to happen. It is through him that all things were created. That means that he is the creative agent. And then Christ is the goal of all creation. It was created for him. In other words, everything exists to display his glory. And that everything of creation is to glorify him. And that's why the Bible says that creation groans for the day of redemption. Uh, they know that God is God. They know that He is Creator God. They know that Christ is the creative agent. And they long for the day that He alone will be glorified as Creator God. Notice also, though, that Christ and only Christ is the one who can create not only physical life, your life, He created you, but also spiritual life. He creates a new life. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. <clears throat> Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. Jesus doesn't take a life and repairs that life or adds to that life. He gives you a new life. That means that everything that has happened in your past is no more. He doesn't see it, that you have been forgiven and also that you've been cleansed of all your past. Do you believe that? Have you accepted that truth and that fact, if you are in Christ, that all that is over with and that you're a new person in Him? Notice also Christ can create a pure heart. David in his great confession of his sin with Bathsheba in Psalm 51 verse 10, he says, God created me 
a pure heart. He can create a pure heart in you. So Jesus is the mighty creator. Notice also that he is the mighty king. Now I want to go to a a different passage of scripture to affirm this in the Old Testament. That he is the mighty king. All right, He has a kingdom and he is the king. We find that in Daniel chapter 2, this is also during the period of the exile, Daniel and his friends and others have been taken to uh, Babylon. And they are in captivity. They've been removed from Jerusalem and they're now there. Now they have a, a special place. They are prominent. Uh, as Nebuchadnezzar took those who were uh, more prominent leaders uh, in Jerusalem and in Judah. And so Daniel has found favor. And Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, he has several, and he needs somebody to interpret it. And so Daniel is able to do that. So in Daniel chapter 2, verse 31, we find this. Daniel tells him the dream. He says, My king, as you were watching, a colossal statue appeared. The statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was pure gold, its chest and arms were silver. Its stomach and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron and its feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, how would you like to interpret that? Now, here's what Daniel says in verse 44. In the days of those kings. Now, here's what he's saying. The earlier we find the scripture will teach us is that uh, he's speaking of the empires of Babylon, which is the current in the story, the current empire. Then you have the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire, who overcomes the Babylonians. And that's where you have Cyrus and Darius are allowing Israel to come back, the Jews to come back and rebuild the temple. So that happens, right? He says that's going to happen, and that's who is going to make it happen. Then you have the Greek Empire, who overtakes the Persians. And then you have the Roman Empire, that overtakes the Greeks. Now, most all of that took place during the silent period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. All right, but we know it's happened, right? But notice what he says. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And this kingdom will be not left to another people. It means it's forever. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, which has happened, but will itself endure forever. You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, bronze, fired clay, silver, and gold. The great God has told you, the king, what will happen in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation, certain. Now, who's the stone that crushes all the other kingdoms? It's the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That is the kingdom that is going to be established forever, and the king of that kingdom, that rock, is Jesus Christ. And that's the point that I want to hone in on, of who he is. God's spiritual kingdom, he's saying, is going to be established. Began with the first advent, with the birth of the baby in the manger, ultimately leading to the cross and the resurrection. 
That's when the first spiritual kingdom came with the advent of Christ. But the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ, which will be a literal kingdom on earth, is going to happen at the second advent of Christ, which we all long to happen. Isaiah 9-7 says this, He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom from now on and forever. But the point I want to make here is that Christ is this mighty king and that he is this rock for us. Psalm 18, David says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my mountain where I seek refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. David says in Psalm 40, He brought me up from a desolate pit out of the muddy clay and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. Jesus would say in Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be a sensible man, like a sensible man, who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the wind blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. Then in Isaiah chapter 28, we find these words. Isaiah, again, is speaking to Judah. To Jerusalem, and he says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you mockers who rule this people in Jerusalem. For you said, We have cut a deal with death, and we have made an agreement with Sheol. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, it will not touch us, because we have made falsehood our refuge and have hidden behind treachery. Therefore, the Lord God said, Look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone. A sure foundation, the one who believes will be unshakable. Now, who's he talking about? What's going on there? He's saying to Israel, he said, let me tell you, he said, the Syrians, they're death. But you've made a deal with them. And they represent hell. That's what he means by the word Sheol. They're from hell. And that's who you've made it a pact with. And you assume that you can live the life that you want to live and I've told you that they're going to come and they're going to take you into captivity. And you assume they're going to pass through and they're not going to touch you. He said, that's not going to happen. And your only salvation is in the future that you have in the rock, in the cornerstone, the Jesus Christ, the Messiah of his kingdom. Paul would say this in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. When Christ came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away. Those are the Gentiles, anybody other than a Jew. And peace to those who were near, those are the Jews. For through him, that is Christ, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. The whole building is being fitted together in him and is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Paul would say this in Acts 4. Jesus, this Jesus, or Peter, is preaching. This Jesus is the stone despised by you builders who has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Christ is the rock of God's kingdom. He is the mighty king. He's the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. But you have to allow him 
to rule and to reign your life. You see, we think of a kingdom of something that's grand and vast, which it is, but it all is hanging on the kingdom of your life and the throne that's in the kingdom of your heart and whether or not he is on that throne. It's his rule as mighty king that gives you true security, true peace, and his kingdom will last forever. Now notice also this mighty God, this Jesus, is a mighty conqueror. Jesus said in John 16, you will have suffering in this world. Be courageous, I have conquered the world. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. John writes, whatever has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. And who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Paul writes to Timothy, This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. John writes, The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. So Christ has conquered, first of all, disease, all disease. That he not only heals us physically, he's able to do that, but he heals us mentally and emotionally. That, look, we live in a world that is hurting and so confused and disillusioned and overcome with mental health and emotional health issues. There's no greater time than to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and the need for a mighty conqueror who will help them overcome what the devil is trying to do in their life. Christ has conquered death itself by his death on the cross and in his resurrection and he conquered sin and death and then over the devil himself. He said, I've come to destroy the works of the devil and he did so. Christ is our mighty conqueror and that's why Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Everything that God has destined for you to do, everything that you ought to do, you can do through the power of Jesus Christ who is our mighty conqueror. And then finally, this mighty God, Jesus Christ, is our mighty Savior. In the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2, we find these words. Today, a Savior who is Messiah the Lord was born for you in the city of David. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in cloth and lying in a manger. We come now full circle to Isaiah's prophecy. He said, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us. We find in Titus 2, for the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse us for himself, a special people eager to do good works. Now when you read that, do you see the past, the present, and the future? In the past, he gave himself to redeem us, he said. In the present, we have the power to deny sin. In the future, we wait for our Savior, our blessed hope, who will deliver us and rescue us from all of this. He's our mighty Savior, saved from the penalty of sin 
at the moment of salvation, saved from the power of sin as we grow in a sanctified life, as we mature and grow in our walk with Christ. And then we're saved from the presence of sin. Praise God, one day it'll all be over. Christ has been given the name Mighty God, Mighty Creator, Mighty King, Mighty Conqueror, and Mighty Savior. And for those who are in Christ, this mighty God lives in you. You possess His might and His power. You have the ability to overcome and to find the power of Christ and His strength in you. But you have to appropriate that power. But I want to give you a warning of one who lost the power. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, we find that Samuel is the prophet of God. And Saul is the first king. Israel saw that other kingdoms had kings. They had judges. Judges were spiritual rulers. They had a judicial role, but also a political and military role and a spiritual role. And so they, 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 they judged Israel. Uh, good judges, bad judges. And Israel's complaining, everybody else has got a king, we want a king, and so... Samuel says, all right, God has said, we're going to give you a king, and his name is Saul. Saul becomes king. And we find that at a certain point that his son Jonathan attacks a garrison of Philistine troops. Well, the Philistines aren't happy about that because Jonathan overcomes them. So they assemble 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and assemble troops that the Bible says are too numerous to, to number and so they, they all assemble and they're ready for battle well at this point it's Israel's history they often cower to the Philistines and so when this begins to happen then the guys start taking off the Bible says that some of Israel's troops they went across the Jordan River east and wandered out in the desert and there were others who head to the hills the Bible says that Samuel, the prophet, is going to come in seven days and to offer a sacrifice, and he's going to seek the Lord's favor as they go into battle against the Philistines. And that's what was set up between him and Saul. And that's what the Lord had commanded through the prophet. Well, each day, more and more troops are leaving Saul. Now, they're at Gilgal. The troops... Some meet him at Gilgal. And by the seventh day, there are 600. Now, I told you how many are waiting by the Philistines to come. So he knows he's in deep trouble. And he's waiting on the prophet Samuel to come so that they can seek the Lord's favor and win the battle. But the day gets later and later and later, and Samuel hasn't showed up. So Saul decides, I'm going to offer the sacrifice. And he calls for them to bring the offerings and to bring the burnt, burnt offering and the peace offering. And so he, he does the burnt offering. And at that moment, guess who shows up? Samuel the prophet. Saul was being tested by God. Would he take things into his own hand or would he submit to the sovereign reign of God? And so he decides he's going to do it. Samuel shows up and he says, what are you doing? And Samuel, basically, Saul says to him, basically, I took matters into my own hand. I didn't know if you were going to show up or not. He panicked. He knew the battle was ensuing, and so he took over. And this is what Samuel the prophet says to him in verse 13. 
Samuel said, you have been foolish. You have not kept the command which the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time that, Lord, that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel. But he tells them there's another king that's been anointed. You've lost the power and eventually he will lose the position. You see, he acted as though he were sovereign rather than being God's servant. You see, it's either self-rule or it's his rule. You'll decide which it is. And that's why we need a mighty God left to our own. We're like the illustration I shared at the very beginning. It leads to death. We need the mighty King Jesus Christ. He is mighty to give you new life, real life as the Creator God. He is mighty to rule and to lead your life as the mighty King. He is mighty to conquer every circumstance that you face. He will get you through it as the mighty conqueror. And He is mighty to save you. He is our mighty Savior. This is our mighty God. And He can be your mighty God today. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? There might be some who would say today, Pastor, I recognize that most of my life has been my own sovereign rule. And I recognize today that I need something other than myself. I need, I need Christ. I need this mighty God in my life. And today, it's a matter of being willing to humble yourself and submitting to God. Letting Him reign in your life. Letting Him be on the throne of your life. It means turning from your way, turning from your sin, and turning to Christ alone for your salvation. You don't have any spiritual strength to do anything concerning your spiritual salvation. But Jesus, as our mighty Savior, has done everything that's needed and required for you to be saved from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and from the presence of sin one day in heaven. So in a moment, when we sing this next song, I'm going to invite you to come to one of our pastors who will help you as you give your heart to Christ. But I suspect there are many in this room who love the Lord, but you're struggling. You're waiting on the Lord to show up, and it's getting harder and harder. You're becoming impatient. And I want to encourage you to learn from the example of Saul, to wait on the Lord. Go on the light that he gives you. If you have no light, you wait. Because at the right time and the right moment, he is going to come and he will help you as mighty God. Some are here today and God is leading you to become part of our church family. We had several this morning in the first service join us as members. Maybe you've been here a while, you've been praying about it. And if God is leading you to come, we invite you to come today. There are others that maybe you just need a quiet moment here at the altar or you would like someone to pray for you. Then you come and we will share that uh, we will pray with you at that time father I thank you for the power of your word and I thank you that that word has become flesh that you came to us through this baby born in a manger and that he possesses a name that is above every name and that at that name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord. That there's power in the name of Christ. Father, help us to learn how to live in that name, in that power. And give these the power to do the right thing right now. In Jesus' name, amen.